This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Ottawa announced a new health care deal with the provinces with great fanfare. It came after a lot of spin about the numbers. I love the way Globe and Mail columnist Andre Picard put it, an orgy of numbers. Turns out the nearly $200 billion they were touting over 10 years actually includes less than $50 billion in new money over that period. UHN CEO Kevin Smith has pointed out that this basically just covers inflation. So the provinces are complaining it's not enough. But what is most disappointing to many stakeholders is the complete focus on money. Is there anything in there that will solve the crisis, transform our ailing system? Now, they would say that the despite the conditions in this proposed agreement to share data and draft action plans, there are really no clear penalties for any province that doesn't do that, no clear provision for clawbacks of money that isn't spent according to the plan. So, what is this going to mean in the clinic and at the bedside? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now, time for The Medical Record. And now I'd like to welcome Dr. Malcolm Moore, medical oncologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Center and the former head of the BC Cancer Agency, Dr. Fahad Razak, an internist and epidemiologist at Unity Health Toronto and former head of the science advisory table and Dr. Elisa Naiman, a family physician and medical director of the medical station in Toronto. Hello, everyone, and welcome to you all. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Hi. Uh, hi, Libby. Let us hi. Be- hi. Let us begin with Dr. Moore, since uh, you have uh, the perspective on the whole system-wide thing. What do you make of this? Well, you know, Libby, I find it hard to get too excited about the federal and provincial governments arguing about how much of your tax dollars they're going to spend on health. I mean, this really isn't new money. Uh, it's basically a allocation of, of existing money that you're paying on taxes. I mean, to me, right now, when you when you pay your taxes, Willie, I think about 62 cents goes to the federal government, 38 cents goes to the provincial government. To me, a logical way to do it would be is if that's not enough for the provincial government, they should fund, you know, alter the distribution so the provinces get more because health care is more expensive. I, to me, what I would say most disappointing is what's not in this announcement, which is I think that the way the federal government could best help health would be to fund specific national programs in health so that these services are provided to everybody in Canada. And the obvious one, and the one that's on the table, is the National Pharmacare Program. 
I mean, drugs are approved nationally, but uh, they're funded individually by the provinces. And the reality is that access to drugs is not equal across the country because some some pay, provinces are not able to pay for some of these expensive new cancer, arthritis, and other drugs. So I honestly think a better way for the feds to contribute to health would be in, in some national initiatives, which would be consistent across the country and will provide services such as drugs to everybody. Mm-hmm, yeah, <laughs> try getting the premiers on board for mm-hmm. that. Dr. Razak, there's uh, $2 billion unconditional to immediately try to get more primary care, family doctors, and uh, help to emergency rooms. So money may be immediate, but, but how do, you, how do you, uh, you know, staff up immediately? Yeah, so uh, I think I, I really liked your uh, quote from Andre Picard about an orgy of numbers. I think a lot of us are still trying to absorb what's happened here. The first 24 hours, I think the feeling that most people are are saying within the healthcare system about what they've heard is tepid. Um, I don't think that anyone considers this more than just continued payment on a system which is clearly struggling, and many were hoping, including myself, for thinking about something more visionary and transformational in the system. We have a national Medicare system that, you know, is about half a century old now and hasn't had a significant revamp. And we are clearly seeing strain in it. And I think the last three years have just accelerated what many were feeling before the pandemic started in terms of capacity, wait times, access, and many of the barriers that people now are acutely experiencing And like Dr. Moore, I think I would have liked to see something visionary that extends across the country. He mentioned National Pharmacare. I think that's a great one. Um, I think primary care is where my heart would have uh, really liked to see something proposed. Um, Some of the interviews you're seeing today with former uh, Minister Jane Philpott, for example, have, have highlighted that we have a commitment in this country that every child will have access to schooling. We should have, for example, considered a visionary statement such as every individual will have access to a primary care team or a primary care physician or nurse practitioner. That's the kind of vision I would have liked to see. So, I mean, to answer your question, the $2 billion as a prioritized funding towards emergency rooms, wait times, pediatric care, that's great. I think there are clearly problems that can be addressed there, but that that central vision is what I think was really missing from this announcement. Dr. Naiman, how does even say we got a central vision, how would that help you uh, recruit more family docs or, uh, you know, care for more patients? What do you think? Um, I don't actually think it would help very much on a practical basis. Um, the problem with family medicine is that the system is broken so new people who are in family medicine and graduate from the residency program don't want to provide comprehensive primary care. Um, it's expensive. You don't get remunerated as well as other specialties. You're, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, you're a small business and the cost of operating a clinic continue and continue to go up. And the demands that are placed upon us on a daily basis, it's you never stop. You're always working and trying to help patients um, evenings, weekends, it's this burnout that people complain. And without this actual, not money, money will help to incentivize people to go, but without changing how the healthcare system operates at a primary care level, 
there won't be any impact because nobody right now wants to go into primary care. How big a problem is the administrative aspect of it? Because, uh, I mean, it would seem to me that uh, that's something that you could, you know, take away from doctors uh, to free them up a bit. Am, am I wrong about that, Dr. Moore? I'm not sure exactly what you mean by administrative aspects. Uh, maybe you could just elaborate. Paperwork. I've well, heard a lot of family docs complain about paperwork. Well, I mean, these days, honestly, it's mostly computer work. Uh, but, I mean, there is a lot of administrative work. And, I mean, I think the language you'll often hear in healthcare is people working at the top of their scope of practice. So that uh, when you've got doctors, nurses, and other highly trained people in healthcare, you want them doing the stuff that only they can do. Uh, rather than uh, the administrative sort of paperwork, if you like, that could be done by other uh, people who don't don't have that level of qualification. So I think that's a that that's an ongoing issue in the system, and not an easy system necessarily to, to fix. And I think what's been a bit of a disappointment to many of us is as as these electronic health systems have come in, the hope was that that would reduce the administrative burden on physicians, nurses, and others, and that actually hasn't happened. It, it just means now you're spending more time on the computer rather than with the patient. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, on, uh, in another occasion, I think there's some issues with those that, that I'd like to get into, but but this is kind of more top of mind. Uh, Libby, so, if I, could, uh, if I could add to the point about paperwork, I mean, I think one thing that... Um, is pretty is relevant to that is um, there was recently uh, just just last week a report was released uh, by the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses that looks specifically at paperwork for example that primary care physicians have to complete and their estimate was one out of every five working days so essentially one day a week was being consumed by paperwork and a lot of this was forms that both government and family physicians agreed upon as being excessively long and unnecessary, but because of the legacy in the system, because of inertia, they haven't been able to address this. So there, there is a real opportunity, I think, to reduce some of these. Uh, I, I can tell you from the, from the internal medicine and hospital side, sometimes when we get forms to complete, for example, for income support or other paperwork, they're extremely long. And I think there's a sense that if some of these could be reduced, we could reprioritize time towards patient care. Uh, and, uh, Dr. Naiman, what are some of the forms that you have to fill out and are some of them for insurance or, uh, whatever? Oh, so the forms, so the forms could be, it's going to be tax season soon. We'll get an onslaught of disability tax credit forms will require people going on short-term disability, long-term disability. There's all of those forms, um, a medication, I prescribe a medication, somebody's private insurance won't cover it unless additional information isn't filled out. It could be that the government will pay for, will pay for the medication, but you have to fill in an additional form. Um, and then people wanting notes. Last year it was with the, with the pandemic and people wanted a clearance for safety travel. So we had a lot of those forms. It's just, uh, more and more forms all, all the time. Somebody comes in and they, I must get at least two, three forms a day. And then people will go and say, my specialist wouldn't fill this form. They said, this is for the family doctor to do. So when we talk about why nobody wants to go into primary care, it's because a whole bunch of things that other specialists don't want to deal with. 
it just gets dumped onto us. And it, it causes demoralization within, within the physicians because we just feel like we're just doing everybody else's work. Uh, I mean, Dr. Moore was talking about the top of the scope. I mean, isn't, aren't there uh, admin people who can do this? Um, how, well, how it works for us is that the admin is so busy answering phone calls. Like in my office, we have 500 inbound and outbound calls a day. So they're busy responding to people's phone requests. We get over 100 emails a day. We get over, we get 150 faxes coming in that have to be sorted. Uh, the downloading of services onto primary care. So before the pandemic, I could give a patient a requisition and they could order their mammogram at, their, at the hospital directly. Now I have to fax it. Now the hospital sends us back the, the information as to when the appointment is, and then my staff have to call them and tell the patient when the appointment is. So they're busy doing so much other stuff that to have them fill in a form, there's just no time for them to do it, so it gets stuck with us to do. Don't get me started on those fax machines. <laughs> oh, the faxes. The faxes are ridiculous. <laughs> the faxes are ridiculous. You know, I'm I'm sure that there are, even though most of our audience is older, granted, I'm sure there are people listening today that, that perhaps have, have never even seen one. <laughs> and, and yet, and yet they sit at the center funny. of every hospital, every healthcare. I know. Yeah. yeah, it's quite funny because people come in, they're like, "You're still using faxes." I'm like, "This is how the healthcare system operates. It operates <laughs> all on faxes." <laughs> There's somebody very senior here who loves faxes, still uses them. But anyway, that's uh, that's uh, uh, neither here nor there. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Ozaki, we're talking about, you know, uh, a grand vision. So was Dr. Moore national program. You know, I, I, I don't want to get into the politics of that, but, but how do you get from that to something that makes a difference day to day to a patient? I mean, uh, for me, the thing that is most striking and the biggest opportunity and does require a national vision because it's big and it's going to be challenging, it's going to be expensive, is the roughly 6 million Canadians who don't have access to a primary care physician or primary care team. That is, uh, we, we have uh, oodles and oodles of research that tell us that the foundation of a well-performing health system is access to primary care. It is where the metal meets the road. It's where a lot of the routine things that, if not managed, will spiral out of control, leading to people ending up in hospital or in other places. It's where a lot of the intersection between medicine and social services happens. So I think that's the big opportunity, but but 6 million people in a country of just under 40 million people is a lot of people who don't have access to primary care. And that is not, as you've said, you know, as you've said, if there was money, could you hire enough people today? No, you couldn't. You, it's, it's, it's a training pipeline. It is in some ways recruiting of people from other countries. But again, we've talked about the moral imperative of not just stealing from other uh, healthcare uh, settings where people are already under-resourced. It's about reimagining what care looks like in primary care, not one family doctor serving an entire community, but a, a primary care team that has nurse practitioners and doctors and pharmacists so that you go in and the team provides you level of scope, the kind of care you need. It could be a pharmacist who deals with minor issues or renewal of medications. It could be a nurse practitioner for forms, it could be a, a family doctor for something that's undiagnosed and complex, but it's the 
team providing care, sort of like we do in a hospital, but now within each primary care center. So I think that would have been the most compelling vision that I would have liked to see um, from this conversation. But there are other things. There are, for example, the right-sizing of our pediatric care system. One of the biggest crises we've seen in the last three years, not just because of COVID, but other respiratory viruses, was the fact that our our pediatric care system is not at the capacity needed for the amount of children we have in this country. So that, that would have been another important target, for example. So I think this was a, a missed opportunity in that we've just went through a generational health crisis. This is the time to think about the big solutions, not incremental change. What about the training piece, uh, Dr. Moore? I know that we've talked about not, you know, stealing good medical professionals from other places. But, you know, I know of people who are worried about getting a residency here. As an example, um, my nephew's partner is in medical. She's in an American medical school in Israel. And um, she'll be doing her rotations in the States. She really wants to come back. She's Canadian and she wants to come back and live and work in Canada, but she's afraid she won't get a, a residency. Well, you know, just to step back from this for a second, you know, a lot of the aspects of the training of health personnel are provincial, not federal uh, for the first part. The other thing is that uh, and I'm sure Fahad's probably done this as well, is I've been involved in the selection process for medical schools. And probably the most striking thing is the number of highly qualified candidates for medical school that don't get in because there's not enough places. And I think one of the, the problems over the past 20 years has been this inability to match the training of health personnel with the actual need for it in society. And clearly, what we we can see now is that given the shortage of family doctors, given the shortage of nurses, we we in Ontario and other provinces have not trained enough of these individuals. And the ultimate solution, for my mind, is is to increase the training spots and make sure that it's it's matched to the needs of the population. I think these ideas about licensing foreign doctors, foreign nurses, whatever. I mean, that's fine in, in a crisis, but the longer-term solution is to train enough of these people at home. And frankly, when you look at the people who are applying for the schools, who are highly qualified but are not getting in, that human resource exists in the province today. Well, exactly. I mean, the the young woman I was talking about, she's there because she could only get a waitlisted spot here. Both her parents are in healthcare. She's very smart. And I know there are a lot of other people like her who are talented, good marks, like all the right things, and they just can't get in here. Silence. No, that's right. So this has been going on for 20 years that people haven't been able, you know, when back in when Bob Ray was premier, he cut the he cut the medical school school spots in the late 90s. So where we're at now with primary care and with this whole group of doctors retiring is that there was a there was a substantial decrease in the number of people of spots available. And then on top of that, then they made it that there was no residency spots. So all of these qualified can qualified Canadians who went abroad to go to school, who wanted to come back, they couldn't go back. Although, so it's part, but the the government has to get more funding to have the residency spots. And if there's more funding, then people will come back and they'll want to be here. People who have family here don't want to go to the states. 
and it, and the process to get back is hard. So they have to they have to work on that. But this is this is an ongoing problem for, for many years. And and in terms of uh, making it, you know, sometimes we, you know, there's there's always ne- negotiations, and we hear about, uh, you know, uh, compensation for family docs. But again, how 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 much of uh, that is is the problem, and all these other things, uh, really, you know, more of an issue, or or is it, you you know, because it often sounds to us if we're just covering it, you know, throw some money at it, and and that'll work. I mean, I think there is a, I think there is a real opportunity to look at how compensation between medical specialties uh, drives the incentive to people choosing one profession or another. Uh, it, the, the The difference between um, specialties can be very significant. It can be two to three fold differences in remuneration that physicians uh, take home. And you know, I'm 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 someone, um, and Alyssa, someone. And I think Malcolm is some we're we're on the lower end of the distribution of what these medical specialties make. But you, we we meet students who go through who go into medicine because they want to help people, and all of these specialties they help people. But then they also see there's these enormous differences in remuneration between specialties, and it does influence their decision. And I, of course, I understand why it does. And I think there has been an inability at the and a lot of this is uh, provincial decision making to rein in the differentials, the gaps between these specialties. So you end up losing people from family medicine, um, hospital-based internal medicine, which cares for, you know, about 50% of the hospital admissions go to my medical ward. Um, rheumatology, which deals with joints and, and uh, pediatrics for the care of kids. You lose people going into some of these specialties into the higher earning specialties. Again, important that those specialties have people, but there is this differential in income is driving sometimes some of the gaps we're seeing. Yeah, but aren't there uh, sort of uh, some entrenched interests protecting those differentials? I mean, yeah, yeah, yes, and it comes a lot from, unfortunately, from the physician organizations at the provincial level that protect these gaps, these differentials that drive some of the imbalances we're seeing. So I do think it has to be part of the conversation. It's not, it's not nice to talk about money. Canadians are reticent often, but it is part of what's driving these problems. Uh, Dr. Moore, your view of this? I, you know, I would agree with that, and uh, and some of this is almost inadvertent. Like as technologies have improved, some of the uh, specialties that require that use technologies like endoscopy or radiology and stuff are able to do things much faster than they used to be able to do, and yet the compensation models maybe weren't adjusted to account for the fact that these procedures now take less time. So. So I, I think some of this has almost happened inadvertently, and it would be it's very difficult to roll it back. I mean, the other piece of the compensation model, which is particularly relevant to primary care, is how we fund primary care doctors. Do we fund them on episodes of care? That is, the more patients you see, the more money you get. Or do we fund them uh, to provide service on a, on a more of a a capitation or or salaried model where they can spend more time with the complex patients and and that's that's something that's certainly being tried in the province at the present time mhm but you know i guess some people uh, like that and some people don't and it's it, it's a, it's an issue for patients too i mean you know it's like uh 
I've, I've seen in clinics where there's, you know, a sign up, you wait however long to see your family doc. And it's like only one problem at a time. <laughs> and if it's a vulnerable older person, they have uh, lots of problems at once, Dr. Naaman, do they not? Oh, absolutely. People, it's, the problem is, is that how the system is designed is that you have short visits. If you work on a fee-for-service model, then you have to because there would be no way that a doctor could could have their business going. In a capitated model, it's actually much better because you should be able to spend more time with the patient. But when they set up the capitation model in the early 2000s in Ontario, it's just purely based on people's age and gender. And so you could have a complex patient who could be 30 with 10 medical problems and the doctor will not get paid a lot. So people don't want to have that type of patient, right? It's terrible that I'm saying this, but that's just how the system works. So there's been a push in the last um, agreement with the provincial government that they would, some of the money that goes to to other aspects would be reinvested and it would be based on actually people's comp, like their medical conditions that people, you would get paid more if you were looking after somebody who had a more complex medical history. Uh, wait a minute. So, wait, wait. I have a question. So women or okay. men, who is more, who, who, what's the difference in the way they, they assess women and men? Do women have more problems or men? Uh, you get paid more for a female than for a male. And why? Because don't we live longer and everything? No, this is on, on a, so a 50-year-old female, a doctor will get paid more on a capitated model for a 50-year-old female than for a 50-year-old male, because a 50-year-old female will probably accessing more right. care in a year than, than a male. And, and she'll probably have to nag her husband four or five times. Oh, the husband never comes. <laughs> <laughs> and then as you get, as, and then so the amount that you get per patient as the patient increases, like, becomes older, they have more complex medical problems, and you'll get paid more. So for a 90-year-old female, I might get $600 in a year for having the person on my roster of patients. And for maybe like a 20-year-old male, I might get 100 or $150. So as people age, you get paid more to compensate, but it, nobody wants to have somebody who is young and um, has many medical problems, or even somebody who's old who will be constantly coming to the office. So <laughs> this is this is how it works. So when people say, you know, they ask me to send in my medical history and then I get denied, which shouldn't happen, but does, this gives an understanding as to why this happens. And so hopefully it was supposed to change next year, but they've been in uh, April 2024, but they've been uh, delayed and doing. Uh, no, it was supposed to be in April 2023, but they've been delayed and now it's pushed for an extra year. So hopefully, this will incentivize people to take patients who have more complex medical problems. Wow, this is amazing! Like I had, uh, I'm learning so much from uh, from you. Uh, I'm looking at the time; we're out of time, so uh, let's go around the virtual table with where does I'm assuming the the provinces will all you know take the money and and uh, not stop complaining. So, uh, Doctor Razak, where does this leave us? So, I think it leaves us with trying to improve the status quo rather than uh, create a newer, better system that many of us hope for. I think a lot of details are still pending. Ha uh, around half of the discretionary funding 
looks like it's going to be negotiated with bilateral deals directly federally to each individual province. And I think that's where a lot of the remaining action will be. So we'll see what this means for Ontario in the coming months. Dr. Naiman? Um, I think we continue as a as a population need to press the government that the, the state of the current system is just not acceptable. And without pressure from us as like consumers of healthcare, that there needs to be changes. And without that, we'll just continue on with the status quo. And Dr. Moore, last word to you. Well, I think as we talk about the challenges in the healthcare, it really boils that the, the number one challenge is around access, access to family doctors, access to drugs, access to emergency care, uh, access to timely surgery. So I think whenever we look at major health announcements, we need to look at them in the context of how does this improve access to the system for the patients of Canada. And I think we've talked today about how uh, some of the reservations we have about the, that the current agreement is going to improve access to a significant degree. Okay, well, we'll have to see how this all shakes out. In the meantime, uh, fascinating conversation. Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Malcolm Moore, Dr. Alisa Naiman, and Dr. Fahad Razak. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Okay, and uh, this just in, two children, and two children are dead. And six others are seriously injured after the city bus crashed into a daycare north of Montreal. Uh, obviously, we are going to have more on that terrible situation uh, in news and as the details come out. Right now, we are taking a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about your energy bills, natural gas. Why are they up so much when we return? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Have you noticed your energy bills going way up? Residents in the GTA have seen the rates double over the past two years from 10 cents per cubic meter to 23 cents per cubic meter. And companies like Ambridge are blaming the war in Ukraine, the war on Ukraine, and the U.S. demand for Canadian natural gas. And what's up with the way our usage is being measured? Now, I am looking at my bill from home. The bill uh, for December is for two months, actually, if you can believe this. Now, the usage says, wow, it's like up 40%. Well, it was a pretty mild month last month compared to last year, and uh, I mean in December, and we did not have any change in our appliances or anything like that, but the company is now estimating how much we use rather than actually reading our meters. As a matter of fact, they're getting a third part party company to do that estimate. Um, yeah, <laughs> really? I don't know where those estimates come from, except maybe trying to meet their targets or something like that. So what about that? Numbers to call. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I am now joined by Dr. Warren Maybe. I hope I am pronouncing that right, Director of the Institute for Energy 
and Environmental Policy at Queen's University, and Dan McTague, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Oh, I got the pronunciation right. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you to be here, Libby. So uh, let's start with Dr. Maybe. Um, wh- why, why are we getting these bills that are so high? Well, it's a truth that the cost of natural gas has gone up. Um, I don't think it's gone up quite as much as is reflected in your bill, and we can talk about that in a second. Uh, but there's definitely more demand for the product. Uh, there has been over the last couple of years. Uh, this has to do with a lot of different things, not just the war in Ukraine, uh, but more and more utilities relying on natural gas for electricity production, uh, you know, as they're maybe transitioning away from some of the more dirty fossil fuels like coal. Uh, there's a global market for natural gas that is continuing to become uh, more competitive. And of course, the war in Ukraine has driven up the cost of natural gas because uh, there's so much speculation on the market. And, you know, we saw those future prices really skyrocket through the fall. So part of what you're seeing is definitely uh, the actual commodity price going up. But what you're talking about, about the meters not being read properly or the estimates coming in wrong, that's another factor. And when you compound all these things, yes, you're definitely seeing uh, higher bills. Uh, Dan, I want to get on to the meters not being read and and they're being read by a third party and and I mean I'm assuming that they probably use some kind of computer program and I would not be shocked if uh you know they have targets to meet or something like that because I you know <laughs> what can I say well it is the deployment of uh, you know new digital technology and it's uh, not of course the only utility we we see this in uh, in electric bills as well we've seen this for quite some time I think this is just uh, the providers uh, catching up with times. But what goes up must come down, not just in terms of the price itself or natural gas, but this, uh, if an adjustment has been made based on assumptions that are, you know, through artificial intelligence or otherwise, uh, it means that uh, you would automatically be in line for a an adjustment, which I think is done more periodically. This, by the way, this process, which has been around for some time, kicked around for some time, has been approved by the regulator. So when we're talking about natural gas, unlike gasoline or diesel prices, uh, your your natural gas price and those charges that you pay for are pre-approved months before by the uh, Ontario Energy Board. So it is a regulated price, and so are the instruments that are used. So I guess that what we're going to see here, uh, not just in terms of overestimation uh, of average prices, as you saw, Libby, uh, and what you the consumption was, uh, markets are are simply now basically trashing uh, natural gas prices, and uh, we're going to see, you know, uh, you know that twenty three dollars you mentioned at the outset uh, coming up from ten. We're going to walk right back there between now and probably the first of July, but unfortunately, we have to wait three months because that's when the price revisions take place post uh, approvals by the Ontario Energy Board. And, uh, you know, if, if you talk to the utilities, they'd say, oh, we'll just get equal billing or something. Is that, is, is that a reasonable response? I don't think it's a reasonable response if the amount of that you're forced to pay up front uh, tends to uh, become outrageously high and for many people unacceptably high. And so I think there has to be a, a better way of squaring uh, this uh, this problem by ensuring that uh, 
the estimations may be more conservative or more modest than uh, perhaps uh, as egregiously as you've had to pay, and many others have complained to me about this. Uh, I suspect that the Ontario Energy Board, the next round of hearings, uh, will have a lot more to, uh, to look at. Uh, and people should be writing their uh, provincial MPPs and the Ontario Energy Board uh, to uh, to protest, to say this is wrong. Forget Enbridge or whoever your natural gas supplier may be. Go directly to the source of the people who are going to be making the decisions. I think you'll find that uh, those, uh, those, those comments and those laments normally don't fall on very deaf ears. Yeah, but the regulator is uh, independent, <laughs> allegedly. Uh, yes, yes, they are, but they... You know they have to ensure that uh, it's done in a way that uh, that provides protection for consumers, as well as ensuring that the provider has uh, the adequate wherewithal uh, financially to be able to continue to provide reliable sources. And look, we're we're we are we're price takers. There's no doubt, not just with uh, respect to a weak Canadian dollar, which of course has helped drive up prices, but we also import a lot of our natural gas. This wasn't the case 20 or 30 years ago. From you know uh, the U.S. Marcellus Shale, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, sorry, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and the like. So, uh, Libby, I just put it in, in context. Two Augusts ago, so in August 2021, the average price uh, for MMBTU at the Henry Hub uh, for natural gas was about two and a half bucks uh, for a unit. Uh, it then went to four following August of 2021, and last August it was eight eighty one. Wow. It's now back to two. So uh, it's it's rather. I mean, we're having this discussion. I can guarantee you in July we won't be talking too much about natural gas, save and except the, uh, the increases in taxes, the HST, and, of course, uh, the ever-increasing carbon tax. Let's take a call from Cindy in Toronto. Hi, Cindy. Hi. Um, so in August, um, my elderly mother, who's 86, received um, an Enbridge bill, and it was $450. Wow. So I was shocked. I called Enbridge. And the lady that I spoke with at customer service, she seemed to be very frustrated and kept on telling me that prices have increased. This is, you know, to be expected. I said, listen, lady, I said, this is August. This is like October. My mother didn't, she didn't even have the heat on, never mind this, this bill. So she said that, you know, um, it, uh, she would look into us. No, we need to look into it now. So I, I, we talked about it. And finally, I said to her, could there be a, a problem with the meter? I want the meter changed. This is impossible. So she said, that she asked me to read the meter. And yes, they had estimated uh, uh, something that was like 4720, and they estimated like 4750. You know, and that came out to a $450 bill. Oh, okay. Well, um, in in October. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I. Wow. Well, um, the we difference. Got it resolved. Yeah, you got um, it resolved. We finally got it resolved, um, but it, it took at least speaking to at least four different people, um, and com- and 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 putting a complaint to her manager because it, 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 we were just going to seem to work around in circles because they kept on insisting that gas prices have increased. Okay, yeah, everybody seems to talk about that. Cindy, uh, thanks for telling us about that. Okay, yeah, I mean, um, so for people who have the uh, time and patience to deal, excuse me. Sorry, I had to sneeze. <laughs> so, uh, for people who have the time and patience to, I don't know, spend a long time on the telephone, maybe you can resolve it before before the bills are equalized. But, uh, you know, I think Dr. Maybe said it 
the right way that, uh, wow, you know, this is, uh, this is really a, a difficult way to, to have a solution. Dan, I mean, can you think of a better way? Well, I think there has to be a better way. If uh, you have concerns about uh, the charge you were provided, then you don't get an adequate response. Look, uh, Libby, you and I know I served 18 years as a member of parliament. When people couldn't get through the departments, couldn't get through the bureaucrats, couldn't get through the entanglement, they came to us, and that was our job. That's what we got paid for. That's what we had staff for. So, you know, I, I, I can't underemphasize the importance of checking yourself, checking with the local utility. Uh, I saw that happen with my water uh, a couple of years ago. Same thing. They misread the, the number. Uh, and I wound up with this massive charge of $2,500 for something where wow. it was no more than 150 But I called the utility, and it was resolved. However, when and if, and often you write your own numbers in, when and if you have that problem, and, and in doubt, in doubt, call your MP call your MPP, uh, that, that's what they're there for. That's what you pay your taxes for. And that's, uh, they're at the ready, usually help. And they can cut through a lot of the chase to get to, to, get to the bottom of the problem. If it's, uh, if it's sudden, sudden, something like the previous caller had said, you know, she's de- acting on behalf of her mom, who's 85 years of age, you know, our seniors shouldn't be, uh, you know, shouldn't be exposed to that kind of uh, regulatory runaround. Uh, there's a, an easier route, and I think the MPP is, is the way to go. Well, uh, and, you know, for people who can't afford it, and particularly people who are older and possibly frail or, or um, you know, it's, it's, it's very stressful to deal with something like this. I mean, you know, at least uh, you can't be cut off from your heat in the winter, but still it's, it's something that is extremely stressful. And, and uh, you know, I have to say I'm, I'm surprised that this function is outsourced. And I'd kind of like to know more about that. And who are these companies and how exactly do they make their money? Well, good question. I, you know, these are uh, companies that are hired to, uh, uh, to do the job more effectively than what was done previous when these companies, uh, you know, had their own personnel doing it for them, or they had you volunteer the numbers. Whatever the case may be, if there is a significant, I'm looking at the, you know, the, the feeds, the, uh, the emails, the uh, commentary, uh, it's going to be really up to the Ontario Energy Board to have a, a second look at this and say this is not working. In many cases, people who can least afford this, people have no time, people do not have the wherewithal to, you know, to start working their way through and try to resolve this bill. Many of them are simply going to pay up and uh, wind up sacrificing other forms of things that they, they desperately need. So I, yeah, I like food. the Ontario Energy Board, exactly, food. Uh, and, 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 and other necessities, uh, prescription drugs where they're not covered. So look, maybe I think there's a, there's a, a process and I think uh, people should be raising this concern, uh, not with the Ontario Energy Board, cause that's, you know, they will obviously respond to any individual question, but the first line is those who understand and who can open up the doors much quicker. And that's, uh, your elected officials. Well, what strikes me about this, and I'm, I want to take one more call before we wrap this up is that, you know, the, the, the explanation is they're short-staffed, pandemic, all of that. But uh, it would look to me that that uh, there's not an intention to try to recruit more people to do this job. I think uh, that this is the way uh, it is going to go or that managers have decided, executives have decided this is the way it's going to go. And that might uh, cause more problems. But uh, let's take a call from Gerald in Scarborough. Hi, Gerald. Hi there. Uh, I was um, watching a, a little snippet of, of what's happening in Scotland, and one of the, 
the things that they were able to do is is every month they would go out to their meter, take the numbers down, and then um, type them in the computer. There, the estimation estimate is always wrong. Uh, um, uh, it is is not necessary because it will be the actual numbers. Right, if you trust the person to type in the correct number. Well, you know um. what? If you really want to do this, you can turn around and say, okay, um, audit them. <laughs> at, at the end of a year, uh, you go take a look and see what the numbers, if the numbers are right, then then basically they've been right the whole time. I mean, basically you do have to have a trust. And, you know... It, could it be a civic duty that people do? It's like, hey, you know, to me, that, that would make sense. But that's using technology. And I, I, I find that uh, we seem to be technology adverse in many ways. Okay. Thanks, Gerald. I'm going to take one very quick one from Bonnie in Toronto. Hi, Bonnie. Hi, how are you? Fine. Go ahead, please. Uh, so we did a renovation. We're in Toronto. We did a renovation in 2020 and um, replaced our whole HVAC system and uh, set up uh, a new account with Enbridge. We were being charged like $50, $30 a month. And we kept thinking, wow, what a great uh, contractor we had. The house is really secure and safe and warm. And then um, in May of 2022, we got a big bill of almost 300 or $650. And when I called them to complain about the bill, they had been estimating our heat uh, or our gas bill since November of 2021, and this was in May of 2022. And so when I complained, they said that they didn't need to do, uh, they could do estimates for a whole year. They were only required to do an actual reading once a year. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I think uh, on your show, maybe a month ago, I heard something that they're required to do it at least every three months or something. Okay, I'm I'm not sure about what the requirement is, Bonnie. Thanks very much uh, for your call. Uh, I think we're going to have to uh, go back and, and look at this again another time. Right now we are out of time, though. Thanks so much, Dr. Warren Maybe and Dan McTague. Thank you very much. Thanks, Libby. Okay, uh, and we're taking another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to the Provincial Financial Accountability Officer about the budget project. Uh, predictions and whether the Ford government is withholding promised spending when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. According to the Financial Accountability Office, the provincial deficit will be two and a half billion this fiscal year, much lower than the 12.9 billion projected in the fall economic statement. It means that Premier Doug Ford's government will have $12.5 billion in, quote, excess funds over the next three years. And the Financial Accountability Officer, Peter Weltman, says there's enough money for them to top up health by $5 billion or education by a billion, if that's what they want to do. The opposition, meantime, is charging that the government is deliberately withholding billions in promised spending. Right now, let's go to Peter Weltman, Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks very much for having me on. So where did this looks like a bit of a windfall? Where, where did it come from? The uh, the reason for the dis- the difference between the uh, the deficit and, the, and our, our deficit numbers are 
that we expect revenue to be a little bit higher than the government does. We expect economic growth to be a little bit better this year than the government is projecting. We also forecast that government spending is going to be much lower than what the government is has planned. So that's why there's a discrepancy between our $2.5 billion deficit and the government's $12.5 billion deficit. And going forward, we expect some reasonable economic growth, and we don't expect program spending to keep up with the revenue growth that we're going to see over the next five years, hence surpluses. Okay, so is this uh, a matter of keeping money in reserve? I mean, uh, I... Uh, the opposition says they keep money in reserve so they can uh, throw it at the deficit or us near an election. Is uh, or is are there other reasons? Is it sort of taking too long to get promised mo- money out the door and deployed? You know, this has been the fun part of this report. To be honest, it's always fun. This one has been great because what we do is we project the cost of government programs going forward. So we do that independently. We use all the different key cost drivers, we call them. So, you know, physician fees and how many visits and how many hospital days times the cost per hospital stay and that sort of thing. And we do that across all the different sectors and we project it out for five years. And we look at things like, um, you know, population growth and inflation to come up with our, our forecast, our cost analysis. And then what we do is we compare that with what the government has set aside in its planned spending document. And that's where we take the difference. So, for example, as we point out in our report, uh, this year the government, we feel, has over-allocated about over a billion dollars to the health sector. So, so if you take all the different commitments and the existing programs in place, um, and you cost that out, and then you compare it to what the government says it's planning to spend on health care this year, the government actually, we think, has over-allocated a billion. And what that means to me is maybe they have some other announcements that they're going to do. There might be some program changes that are coming, um, and that's why they've put that extra billion in health care. But going forward, to your point, we see an under-allocation by $5 billion over the next three years. And what that, And yet, to your point, too, there is a bunch of money sitting and what we call a contingency or an unallocated fund that has not, whose purpose has not yet been defined. So that uh, money could, some of that money could be used to move over to the healthcare, uh, to the health sector uh, spending. So in, in uh, very lay terms, is that, are they, are they promising more than they intend to deliver? Is that what this adds up to? So it, it's the, for this year, um, it, it appears that they are planning they they are planning to spend more than we think they need to for the current programs. So if they are planning additional announcements or program enhancements that are going to cost, uh, you know, let's say an extra billion dollars that they haven't announced yet, um, then they've got the money already put aside for it. Um, but going forward, typically what governments do when they put some money into contingency is they use that in case of, you know, emergency, unpredicted sort of emergencies. And in, in the old days, i.e. before the pandemic, that fund used to be around $700 million to a $1 billion. <clears throat> and the typical reasoning for it would be, well, if there are forest fires in northern Ontario or floods, et cetera, that require these one-off uh, payments, we have a little money tucked away. The little money tucked away is now what we, we forecast over the next uh, five years is about $12.5 billion, which is a heck of a lot higher than it used to be. And um, 
and that's where you know I, I think uh, the government can do a little better job in terms of explaining what they really have in mind for that for that money. And and what about is it a factor? I mean, we've seen a lot of instances where the government announces money, they reannounce it, reannounce it, and and months later, it's still the the people or the programs who are supposed to receive it still don't have that check. Yeah, that well, you know, reannouncing is great, right? Because it's it's free, if you will, and you get to you know it's good news, and you can get to put the good news out as often as you can. So that's a different your, your situation in terms of the money getting out the door is different than this. This is simply the planning of spending the money. Um, it's not you know the, 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 then we're getting into well, does the check actually get out the door to people? Recipients actually get the money, and that really varies by program. Sometimes it happens that if a program is new, for example, it might be hard. To, there might be some startup uh, things that happen to that then inhibit getting money out quickly. Sometimes money gets out after the end of the fiscal year, but it still gets charged back to the to the fiscal year in question. So it's 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 a, more of a timing thing as opposed to it never getting out. So what is the bottom line on this? The bottom line on this is the government has put away if you will a very large sum of money into a you know a non un, unallocated fund you can call it what you will some of it in contingency uh which the government says is for prudence and in case of unknowns and you know one of the unknowns frankly that they're going into is wage negotiations and uh we've come off some periods of very high inflation so the typical you know historical settlements of 1% or 2% a year may very well disappear and that could be one of the unknowns that they're provisioning against um, we don't know what the rest is, and I guess that's, like I said, that's the issue I have is when they're asking for money from the Legislative Assembly, from the people's representatives, they're supposed to explain what they intend to do with the money before they get the approval to spend it. <laughs> and here they've got about $12.5 billion that they've got approval to spend, but they haven't had to tell folks what they intend to do with it. Okay, well, we should all keep that in mind, and thank you so much for that, Peter Weltman. Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.